It's the end of the world as we know it, and I feel fine. That crazy starts with an earthquake, birds, snakes, and aeroplanes. Many fruits, not afraid. I have a fatigue, listen to yourself, the world, but it don't need something to your own head. Beat it up and I've seen got no seats. The ladder from the platter with the fear fight down. I fire in a fire, Mr. Chicken Southern Gang, the government for hiring the combat site. But you wasn't coming in a hurry, the jury beat it down your neck. Welcome to the Doom and Bloom Hour with medical preparedness experts, Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. Your source for information on how to succeed if everything else fails. And now, your hosts, Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. dark heart of the city, a mysterious figure known as Dr. Bones. Darn tootin' a mysterious figure. <laughs> I bet you don't know any of my mysteries there, buddy. I know all of your mysteries. Oh, you do? So therefore you're not mysterious. Well, a couple of decades of sitting right next to me for all this <laughs> time. I guess that would probably do it. And it's Okay. It's okay. I forgive you. Do you forgive me for being <laughs> uh, just a little bit mysterious? All right. You can stay a little mysterious. And making like. making you live in the dark heart of the city? Oh, it's not the dark heart. We're in South Florida. It's sunny. Sunny and, and bright. Beautiful. Well, from sunny Florida. We need some rain, though. We do need some rain. My veggies need some rain. From the dark heart of the city in Sunny South Florida. Sunny South Florida, that's right. <laughs> this is the Hour of Doom. And Bloom. That's right, friends and neighbors. Welcome to the Doom and Bloom Survival Medicine Hour, a villa of vitality in a vituperous world. I'm Joel MD, also known as Dr. Bones of doomandbloom.net, where you'll find over a thousand posts, videos, and podcasts on medical preparedness for any disaster. Oh, if you guys just heard a squeak, it was just me moving the microphone. <laughs> oh, I thought it was a little it sounded like a squeak. flatulence. Nope, no, nope, no. Nope. I was just moving little, the microphone. It sounded Close, like a, the kind of you. girly flatulence that you would hear. Not you would not me. otherwise not from me, though. see or smell. <laughs> well, who are you? Anyhow? I am Amy Alton, also known as Nurse Amy. I am a advanced registered nurse practitioner and a certified nurse midwife. And together we are the gang of two. We are the medical matrimony, the courageous couple, the hosts with the most. And we're here to help the faithful few keep it together, even if everything else falls apart. Friends and neighbors, have you been injured in an accident with an aggressive alpaca? Well, our attorney says, don't call me, call Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. And listen to this. All information given and opinions voiced on Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy's Survival Medicine Hour are for entertainment purposes only and do not represent medical advice for anything other than post-apocalyptic settings. No contract or provider-patient relationship exists, nor is implied between the hosts or listeners. 
Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy strongly urge their audience to seek modern and standard medical care whenever and wherever it is available. Yeah, but if the sky has fallen, you'd better not be ballin'. You'd better get some training and some medical supplies if you're going to keep your people healthy in times of trouble. If a major disaster happens, would you have the knowledge, would you have the training and materials to take the reins medically for your family or group to be the highest medical asset left? Could you do some good if the situation turns bad? Well, it's time to show the world you've got more sense than a sack full of sand and get that education and, while you're at it, how about a quality medical kit as well? Well, I can't think of a better place to get that than Nurse Amy's entire line of often imitated, never equaled medical kits at store.doomandbloom.net. They'll help you deal with medical issues you'll face in any disaster, They'll make your home, your workplace, your school, even your church safer, and they are designed by an honest-to-gosh medical doctor and advanced registered nurse practitioner. Compare our kits for contents, quality, and cost with anybody else's stuff, and you'll agree our kits are what you should have in your medical storage. Want some more proof? Check out our testimonials page at store.doomandbloom.net and see what folks just like you have to say about our kits and service. And on top of all that, our kits are approved for your health or flexible savings account. Just look at our special HSA FSA section in the store. Hey, we learn as much from you as you do from us, Gus. More probably. So why not connect with the geezer and the goddess? It is indeed the easiest thing you've ever done. And here's Nurse Amy to tell you how. Absolutely. You can email us anytime at drbonespodcast at aol.com. Find us on Facebook at our group, Survival Medicine, DR Bones, and Nurse Amy. Of course, you can like and follow Doom and Bloom Facebook page also. We have everything there. Don't worry. You won't miss anything if you go to the Doom and Bloom Facebook page. You can also follow us on Twitter at Prepper Show. And don't forget our YouTube channel. I am putting up more videos. <laughs> I've actually done once, uh, one per week. For the past few weeks. And I have another one Shocking. Yeah. I know. Yay. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Awesome sauce. And don't forget that you can find us often in popular homesteading and survival magazines, things like Surv- American Survival Guide and Survivor's Edge, all the best magazines that there are out there in the genre. Check it out. You'll find our articles there. And hey, here's one last shameless plug for our brand new book, Alton's Antibiotics and Infectious Disease. The Layman's Guide to Available Antibacterials in Austere Settings. It's a detailed look at antibiotics available to the average person that you can get, in other words, and the diseases those antibiotics cure. All the stuff I've been writing about all these years, and in wise hands, believe me, they'll save some who otherwise wouldn't survive times of trouble. You haven't read a book like this before, I guarantee it. This is not stuff you're going to learn at your CERT class and you don't have a book like this in your survival library, I know that for a fact. In Alton's Antibiotics and Infectious Disease, we'll discuss everything that you need to know. It's all about the details, and you'll get the dosing, indication, side effects, and all the other information you've been looking for on all sorts of different antibiotics that you can find online in Alton's Antibiotics in Infectious Disease. Don't forget to check it out. It is on Amazon. It's on our website. You will not regret having it in your survival library. Remember, our books are meant for situations where there is not a functioning modern medical system. If there is, don't delay. Get to a certified medical professional ASAP. 
You know, every year in the United States, we go through various natural disasters. And as spring descends on the U.S., well, tornadoes become one of the most common that you'll find. And they occur in large parts of the country. As a matter of fact, in Lee County, Alabama, a little while ago, a violent storm took the lives of 23 people. It's a little early in the season, maybe, for this kind of weather event, but tornadoes are always a possibility, and they can be very, very deadly. So what's a tornado? A tornado is also called a twister, and it's a violently rotating column of air in contact with both the surface of the earth and a thunderstorm, sometimes called a supercell, which spawns it. From a distance, tornadoes usually appear in the form of this dark funnel that we've always had as, I guess, a stereotype. It has all sorts of flying debris in it and around it. And because of rainfall, they can be pretty difficult to see when they're close up, but certainly can be felt. And all hell will break loose if they actually cross your path. A tornado can have winds of up to 300 miles an hour. They can travel for a number of miles before they peter out. So they can really cause a swath of destruction. Absolutely horrific, especially if they hit flimsy housing like trailers and things like that. They can be accompanied by rain and hail, and as they pass, they emit a roaring sound that reminds you of the passing of a freight train. I think you experienced one. That's right. In the early 1980s, I experienced this exact phenomena personally when I actually lost some roof tiles and several trees in what authorities called a minor event, but boy, it wasn't that minor to me. I thought that we were going to get swept away from it. We had just walked in the door, and within a few minutes after that, it was the sound of a freight train, and it looked like the door was actually buckling in on it. I told the rest of the gang to get into an inside room. I stupidly oh, pushed, no. my, what did you do? pushed my body against the door just in case it was some kind of crazy thing trying to get in. I got lucky for doing the wrong thing. Yes. But I experienced one also. Did you tell I me I was about a that? little kid. Uh-huh. Yeah, we've mentioned this on the show probably many, many years ago. But I was a child in Georgia. We had a house out in the country. And um, our house was sort of at the bottom of a slope. So the, the street in front of us was much higher than the house. And we had trees in our front yard. We had culled some of them, but, you know, there were still some pretty tall pine trees in front. Somehow, my mother knew that a tornado was coming, and we got down into the basement. Thankfully, we had a basement Uh for protection, and this horrible sound, exactly what you're saying, like a freight train ran over the house, it sounded like. In the morning, when we actually woke up, passed through, and then we got up and went to bed, It was nighttime. We couldn't see anything. In the morning, there was a tree that instead of falling downhill onto our house, fell uphill. Wow. So that tornado ripped it out and threw it up the hill away from the house. It was shocking. Well, like I said, once you have heard it, you never will forget it. You are 100%. You will always recognize the sound of a tornado. Absolutely correct. That's right. You know, there are almost a 1,000 tornadoes in the United States every year, more than are reported in any other country, and most of these occur in an area called Tornado Alley. That includes Texas, Oklahoma, Missouri, Kansas, Arkansas, Alabama, and a number of neighboring states. Spring and early summer, those are the peak seasons, but they can occur anytime. 
injuries from tornado usually are a result of trauma from all the flying debris that's carried along with it or maybe the collapse of a building or a trailer, things like that. Strong winds can carry objects. Wow, they can fling objects, things that you don't think could be flung. Well, I'll tell you, I don't know if I believe this, but in 1931, an 83-ton train was theoretically lifted and thrown about 80 feet from the tracks from the force of a tornado. That That doesn't seem possible. It's like... It's like telling me that a city was lifted up and moved. I believe that. I mean, it's just crazy. It is pretty crazy. Eighty-three tons. We just saw the movie Mortal Engines, in which cities were on wheels. Oh yeah, they were on wheels, right? (laughs) That's where that imagery must have come from. I guess so. I guess so. Cities were moving. Well, tornadoes are categorized by something called the Enhanced Fujita Scale. I guess after old Professor Fujita. And they go from level 0 to 5, and they're based on the amount of damage they're caused. And, of course, the miles per hour of the winds. If the winds are 40 to 72 miles an hour within a tornado, mm-hmm. usually you can expect things like broken tree branches, a little structural damage, maybe roof tiles up uplifted, maybe a tree uprooted here and there. But that's considered to be an F0. Mm-hmm. 73 miles an hour to 112 is considered a sort of a moderate event. It could break windows. You might see small tree trunks broken, mobile homes get overturned, things like that, like what you would see in a hurricane. I was just going to say, it sounds like a similar scale to hurricanes. There you go. 113 to 157, that's F2, what's considered to be F2. And mobile homes, are in, in this case, they wouldn't be just overturned. They would be completely destroyed. And you would find a lot of structural damage to wood frame houses due to flying debris. And there would be some trees that would actually be snapped in half, as well as uprooted. Once you get to F3, you are in real severe, really severe territory, 158 miles to 206 miles an hour. Those are the kind that tear the roofs right from the homes, destroy frame houses, and pretty much every tree, you'll see a, a whole sort of, Trail just a clear, of tree a cleared area. Yes, that's right, where the trees have just sort of snapped in half. We see that when we go uh, through I-75 driving towards Atlanta. Yes. Or actually south towards Macon. But just south of McDonough, where my dad is, there was a path. It's starting yes, to grow in now. Mm-hmm. And people will know this from Georgia. I'm not sure if every other place is like this. But in Georgia, they clear out wide areas where they put all the electrical lines. Right. So it's like it's been cleared, except where this area was cleared, there are not electrical lines lines there. It got cleared because a tornado went across I-75. And just unbelievable. Now, you would think that would be about it, but that's only F3. That goes all the way to F5. F4, 207 to 260 miles an hour, strong structures... (sighs) being damaged or destroyed, even lifted from the foundations. Cars can be lifted and blow away. And F5, well, gosh, that goes all the way up to 300 or more miles an hour. That's, by the way, 512 kilometers a mile uh, uh, per hour. And you'll see even large buildings lifted from their foundations. And oh, my gosh. multi-ton debris become that's when airborne schools, missiles. Right. That's when schools and, and large warehouses are flattened. Exactly right. So, Structures that you wouldn't expect would would have damage. 
I mean, who who can actually survive that? 300 miles an hour in a small concentrated spot. See, at least with tor- uh, with uh, hurricanes, we get gusts of winds, but they're kind of spread out. You know right. what I mean? Unless they generate a tornado, which of course can can, can happen. happen. But if it's just the wind from tornadoes, generally it never gets that fast, ever. Yes, that's very true. And we just sort of have gusts of it because in between it's a little calm. So you have a gust of, say, 120 miles an hour, and then the wind behind it might be 80 or 90. So you're not constantly sustaining those winds. With a hurricane, it's constant. That circle of energy that's inside – is just rotating ridiculously. You're not going to get any break from it. When it hits you, you're going to be hit with that wind until it passes over you. And depends on how fast it's going. Some of these things stall out in areas or change direction. Yes, you know, or I mean, bounce, just, or they can even bounce. They can bounce. In my case, my house and the house of a neighbor was we're damaged. Okay. It was damaged, but then there were several houses after that. Absolutely nothing wrong with them, and then like a bunny and rabbit, then two or three houses in a row that were hit, and then another few houses, then two or three other houses that were hit. We've seen was, that a lot in the aerial shots when they show these hurricane damaged areas. That there'll be a hotel destroyed, and then next to it is a perfectly fine restaurant, and then next to that is a shopping center that was torn apart. It's just. It just bounces. They they bounce and they move and they they probably circle around a little bit. If you think about the circular motion, if you can imagine, it's probably zigzagging and Wobbles bouncing and, and wobbling, right? Wobbling and sure, you and just don't know where it's going. So if I have my choice of being in the path of a hurricane or a tornado, I would pick a hurricane every time. I mean, the good thing about hurricanes is because is is thanks to modern technology, we usually come with several days. Warning. warning. We usually get several days of warning. So even if they're not perfect, you get an idea of whether or not you could be in danger. You can make preps. You can get right. out of dodge. You can secure your location. You have an idea of how strong leave. it's going to be. Right. Right. But tornadoes, Tornado. they are oh. especially dangerous because they're so scary. unpredictable. Yep. And they form so rapidly. So this is something. That it pays to have a plan of action for, I have to tell you. Mm-hmm. If if you fail to plan ways to protect yourself and your family, you're going to have a lot of headaches and a lot of heartaches, I'll tell you, because of the traumatic injuries that can occur. Yep. Later on, of course, flooding can contaminate water supplies, both in hurricanes and tornadoes, and can expose you to infectious diseases. That's something that can happen with either a tornado or a hurricane, and I'll tell you, the unprepared family is going to have a lot of problems if they don't plan. Now, although some places may have sirens or other ways of warning you of an approaching tornado, it's important to have a plan for yourself. And if you can figure out before a tornado occurs that you are in the possible path of it, Mm -hmm. well, that's going to be the most likely way you'll survive the event. Children have to be taught where to find the medical kits and if they're mature enough, how to turn off gas and electricity. And I think that it's very important for 
every person to have some experience using a fire extinguisher. They are simple to use. Even a kid can use it. Some training in the use of a fire extinguisher and the treatment of injuries, that would be a good idea. Now, if you see a twister funnel, you got to take shelter immediately. If you live in a mobile home, you got to go. Go, go, go. Do not hang around in the mobile home. They are so vulnerable to damage from winds. And so if you live in a mobile home and there's some time, get to the nearest solid building that has a tornado shelter. Underground shelters are best. If you live in Tornado Alley, consider putting together your own underground shelter. Um, I have an article with a link to how to build one, as a matter of fact, on the website at doomandbloom.net. And at the very least, find out what your municipality's plan of action is and maybe your children's school's plan of action in case of a tornado. Absolutely. Oftentimes the school is the actual shelter for a tornado. They have building codes... And they know they know whether or not they're in al- alligator. <laughs> they're in tornado alligator alley, terrible. alligator. And I was going to say alligator, alligator alley because oh, right. <laughs> that's the road by We're us. right here in alligator. Yes, but I'm sure they have very very special codes, building codes, for putting together schools in these areas because they know that the local community may have to utilize. The school for safety. Right. Uh, life and death matters. So when they build these schools, I'm sure they're very, very strict About in codes. putting them together. Yeah. Right. So it could be your best bet. But again, check with your city and find out. Maybe there's a different building or, or there's a few. So you need to know where the closest one is. Now, let's say you're in the middle of no. You live in the middle of nowhere. You're not near a school. You're not near a large building that you could take shelter in. Right. Well, you know what? you got to find a place in the house where family members can go if a tornado is headed your way. Basements are the absolute best thing to have. You should always be underground if at all possible. That's one thing that you should hopefully have. Stay away from the glass, though. We had the way our basement was made because it was on a downhill. There was one side of the basement that was solid with no windows. Right, against the earth, I guess. And then you could actually walk out the back part because that was on the bottom of the hill. And so that had windows and a door. Right, I so had that we when went I was up, a kid, too. Yeah. yeah, so we went up against the side that basically had earth on the other side of it. Right. Yeah. Well, our, our neck of the woods down here... The water table is about six inches under <laughs> under us. that. Right. So the, the truth of the matter is, is that we cannot have a basement here uh, without doing some pretty amazing calisthenics. So you, we have to pick. Calisthenics. We have. Or <laughs> You're funny. Acrobatics, let's say. So Holding our breath. <laughs> right. So let's say that we'd have to pick. Let's say a bathroom, a closet, some kind of inside room mm-hmm. on the first floor. Those are the best options. Make sure that they don't have windows. Uh, you want to stay away from rooms with windows because these can easily shatter from impact due to flying debris. For added protection, you should get under a heavy object such as maybe a sturdy table. Even covering your body with a, a mattress might not be a bad idea. It would be a good shield, I think. Uh, and discuss this kind of plan of action. I mean, what they should do with each and every member of your family because the truth is they, you may not be together at the exact moment that these oh, things hit. Oh, how scary hit. is that? I know. That is scary. Oh. 
So they've got to know the process by heart. And you got to plan some tornado drills. That might be a great way for kids to learn what to do and try to do it in a fun way so that they don't freak out if they have to do it for real so they can do it in an efficient fashion. Now, let's say you're in a car and you can, if you can drive to a shelter, do so. Now, you may be hesitant to leave your vehicle because, of course, it is a shelter in and of itself of sorts. But remember, they can be easily tossed around the winds, especially with a major strong tornado. You may be safer if there's a, a culvert or other protected area that's lower than the roadway. In town, however, leaving the car to enter a sturdy building, probably an appropriate course of action. If there's no other shelter, though, your car will protect you from some of the flying debris, although you may become some of the flying debris yourself. Wow, that all sounds kind of confusing, honey. <laughs> well, simple, simple again. A car is a shelter from a mild tornado. Gotcha. Okay. If you have no other choice, shelter in a car, it's better than nothing, although indeed you can become part of the flying debris if the tornado is strong enough. The car should be mostly used not as a shelter, but to drive to a shelter. Gotcha. So that's what I'm trying to, to get to there. Use the car to drive to a solid building. If there is no shelter, your car can protect you from some of the flying debris. Keep your seatbelt on. Put your head down below the level of the windows. Cover yourself up with something, if at all possible. Now, if you're caught outside when the tornado hits, stay away from wooded areas if you can, because, of course, those trees can be coming down. Torn branches can become missiles. So an open field or a ditch might be safer, believe it or not. And if you lie down flat in a low spot in the ground that's lower than the rest of the field, let's say, that might give you some protection uh, between you and I. I really don't want to be out in the open. I know. How scary when there is, is that a tornado. Oh that's my all gosh. I can say. They, uh, this, according to the weather service, they say make sure to cover your head if at all possible. Oh. Uh, even if it's just with your hands, I just don't see that as a lot of protection. I guess if there's absolutely nothing else to do, that's all you can do. Now, if you do have enough time, fill up that bathtub with water just in case. You need a one gallon of water a day mm -hmm. for every member of your family. I don't have to tell you that you should have food and medical supplies stored up as well. Having a noisemaker on you, like a loud whistle, and giving one to every member of your family just in case they're buried under debris, that's going to save some energy in terms of your yelling if you are indeed the victim, and it'll help locate you if you are a rescuer. Rescuers can hear you even if you're stuck in your cellar if you have some kind of noisemaker, and the truth of the matter is that you might just be too tired or too injured to really give too much of an effort just in screaming. Well, I have a little trivia here. Okay. Do you know how fast tornadoes generally go? Travel. Travel. Well, I don't think they travel like, you know, 60 miles an hour or anything like that. I would think that they travel like 15, 20 miles an hour would be... I, I, that's just a, a shot in the dark. Well, that's not bad. It says tornadoes generally travel from southwest at an average speed of 30 miles per hour. 30 miles per hour. However, some tornadoes have very erratic paths, which we had talked about bouncing around. Right, they'll go with, in a straight line. With straight. speeds approaching 70 miles an hour. Wow, really? So if you think you're going to outrun a tornado that's bearing down on you, 
And I'm when I mean run, I mean run on your feet is not going to happen. Wow. They're much faster. In fact, some cars can't even outrun them. Depends on how old your car is. <laughs> so they can have a, a pro, approach speeds of 70 miles per hour. So pretty nuts. And you'd have to have no traffic. Think about how fast you'd have to be going if you if you had to speed. You'd have to be going, you know, 80, 90 miles an hour to get away from it. No, that, if well, it was, that was amazing. just bearing down straight at you. I knew you, you couldn't outrun it. But, on your feet, right. right. Or exactly. on a bicycle. All right. But it's not going to happen. I know in car, in a car, maybe you can, in a car, be able to get away. But it just depends on what road it's traveling. If it's bearing down on you and you have no other place to turn, of course, you'd want to turn away from it right. to the side and let it go past you. But if you're on the same road and it's just heading up behind you, it, it could catch up. That's very scary. Now, at home, I think that anyone who doesn't have a tornado shelter who is in an area where a basement or a tornado shelter could be built Mm -hmm. really should think about getting a tornado shelter. Remember that this is not a bunker like a prepper bunker that you're going to be living in full time. This is just for a very, very short period of time. A few minutes. You need just a few square feet per individual just so that they can get in there and be safe just for the short period of time I think the tornado is coming over. Even with my terrible claustrophobia, that I would probably suck it up and get inside one of those, knowing that a tornado was coming. I think because it's makes very sense. quick, it's very fast. You're not going to have to be down there for hours unless something falls on top of your bunker. But you know, at that point, you say, "Well, thankfully I was in here because otherwise I probably wouldn't be alive." Okay. Now, for supplies, of course. Food, water, an alternate shelter, like maybe a tent, a weather radio, good medical kit that concentrates on dealing with trauma. Mm-hmm. Uh, those are the things that I think would be important. I think it's something similar to what we uh, have in our list for a winter car survival kit. I think probably would be a pretty good one. We wrote an article about that that just, uh, well, I mean, just during the winter. Yes. <laughs> Now, a time-honored tornado myth says that if you open the windows, it's going to prevent the roof from being blown off. In truth, opening the windows during a twister could potentially be a life-ending event. It's really a matter of simple physics. The roof on most well-constructed houses are held together by what they call steel, steel L brackets, the letter L. A lot of nails, of course, and 2 by 4 wood beams. Uh, they call them trusses. Mm-hmm. Now, windows no more than about a quarter inch pane of glass. So this is simply just not true. So would you be ready if the tornado siren goes off? Well, if you have a plan of action, you will. So evaluate your home for weak and strong points. See if it is something that might survive a twister. See if the truth is, if it doesn't have a basement, then you are not in the right place. You need to know where you should go if a tornado warning occurs and even you, if it's is just, heading your way. Even if it's just a neighbor, honey. There you go. You know, even if you don't have something, I'm sure there's neighbors around you that are willing to let you shelter in place for the short period of time that you need to. And that's why you should get to know your neighbors. Absolutely. <laughs> it's always a great idea. You know, long ago... 
one of my first articles that I ever wrote about preparedness was on expiration dates. What are they? What do they mean for the average person that has medicine that is no longer, at least according to the bottle, fresh? <laughs> You'll read all sorts of stuff about how dangerous drugs become once they pass a magical date on the bottle. But what actually does happen? Does it still work? Or does it become poisonous? Do you grow a horn in the middle of your forehead or a third eye? I don't know. Well, we actually do know. And I'll, before I start, I just want people to know that in normal times, yes, you should definitely use drugs that are not expired and call your healthcare provider to refill them as prescribed. My focus, though, our focus down here at Doom and Bloom is medical preparedness for major disasters and long-term survival. That's a whole different ballgame. And throwing away medicine as soon as it expires, well, that leaves you with less medicine if something actually happens and they don't manufacture this stuff anymore. So what are expiration dates? Expiration dates were first mandated in the United States in 1979. They represent the last day that a pharmaceutical company will guarantee that a drug is at 100% strength. That's something we call potency. In the grand majority of cases, these medicines don't become toxic after the expiration date. Do, do not become poisonous. You take a pill the month after it expires, you're not going to turn green. You're not going to grow feathers unless you're a parrot. You're not going to grow <laughs> scales uh, and fins unless you're a fish. <laughs> Simple as that. In many cases, drugs that are in pill, powder, or capsule form, they're going to be 100% potent for years after their expiration date. That is a crazy thing to say, isn't it? Just outrageous. Old Dr. Bones has gone off his rocker saying stuff like that. But <laughs> I, guess what, have the government behind me who also agrees and also the scientific evidence. As a matter of fact, I have here in my hand an article from Wilderness and Environmental Medicine. That's the journal of the Wilderness Medical Society. I'm a member of that. And they tested several expired drugs in a remote environment. Matter of fact, so remote that it was in the middle of the ocean. It was a freighter. And they were in hot, hot, hot conditions. This is they. This freighter sort of shuttled between, shuttled between South America and Africa. Mm -hmm. And so they're right around the equator. And they found all of these medicines that they tested that were for several years expired to be safe and effective. So that's just the latest in a series of studies that have been done on expired medicines that find them to be still potent. Now, how did we originally figure this out? The United States has this national emergency medical response, and the Department of Defense and other federal agencies stockpile millions of doses of various medications, sometimes vaccines, things like that, for emergency settings. And in the past, when those drugs uh, expired, what they would do is they revved up the forklifts and they threw out millions of dollars worth Ugh. of stuff. And as you can imagine, even uh. the government figures that, figured out that this got to be pretty expensive. So a study was performed that was called the Shelf Life Extension Program. And that's something I first wrote about years ago. And this program tested 122 drugs that are used in emergency settings they found that most medications, as long as they're in pill or capsule form, were still effective after their expiration dates, sometimes for years. As a matter of fact, there was a study of some San Diego pharmacy that somehow walled up a closet where they kept drugs 
<laughs> forgot, <laughs> forgot about it. And when they renovated, they broke through the wall and they found a closet with drugs that were 28 to 40 years expired. Unbelievable. They tested these drugs and 14 out of the 16 ingredients were still at 100% potency. Matter of fact, some of them were at 110% potency because the fillers in the drugs had degraded more than the actual active ingredients. Unbelievable. So coming to that conclusion, looking at all this data, I recommend that you don't throw them away, but instead make them part of your survival medical storage. And this, I, I, I have to say this is for drugs that are in pill, powder, or capsule form, because liquid medicine does seem to lose potency pretty quickly after the expiration date. Right. And Re- what you mean is like liquid antibiotics... Uh, insulin and also nitroglycerin. Yeah, it, apparently the, breaks the, down the liquid version much faster. Yes, yes, absolutely. And so, these are some of the things that you have to realize that many of these drugs will lose potency very quickly. Now, interestingly, I used to include epipens in that, but epipens, the epinephrine used for severe allergic reactions, actually retain some potency after their expiration dates. They tested a number of them. Uh, up to three or four years after the expiration dates, and many of them had up to 80% potency. That means that they would probably have some effect if you had somebody that had it was an anaphylactic shock and all you had was an expired EpiPen, I'd still give that medicine. And you might have to give two shots as opposed to one, right? Uh, for example, but it's so clear that it does still have some effect that even the company tells you that if all you have is an expired EpiPen, you should use it. Absolutely. Now, the government, despite learning that these medicines were still good after all these years, did not change their system. They still have all sorts of expiration dates that you'll find on your medicine bottles. But what the authorities do instead is put out what are called emergency use authorizations for certain drugs as they need to. Under Section 564 of the Federal Drug, uh, Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act, the FDA can allow an unapproved use of a medical product. In other words, the use of an expired medical, medical problem would be an unapproved use mm-hmm. or an unapproved use of an approved medical product to be used in an emergency to diagnose, treat, or prevent a serious or life-threatening disease or condition whenever there is no other available alternative. And so using Section 564 of the Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act, the government occasionally gives out these emergency use extensions and authorizations. And they extended, for example, the antiviral drug Tamiflu for five years after the expiration date during the 2009 swine flu epidemic. They also proclaimed an emergency use authorization for the antibiotic doxycycline because of concerns over anthrax a few years ago. Right. And that I thought was particularly telling because doxycycline is part of the tetracycline family. And of course, you've heard about all these reports about tetracycline that's expired being terribly dangerous. And indeed, in the 1960s and 70s, there were reports of kidney damage and things like that. But they changed the formulation. And theoretically, if you don't start off with kidney disease... It should not cause that problem anymore. In any case, tetracycline is not one of my top 10 antibiotics I want you to have. So I do want you to have doxycycline, though. And in the fact that they 
extended the use of it for several years after the expiration date should tell you that it is safe, that, that the government did that. Despite this, you're going to see all sorts of quotes, uh, often from academic-type folks, that all medications are dangerous when they're expired, and they should be. But if you're listening to this podcast, you're probably concerned about the future. You might be a prepper. You might be a survival person. You might be a homesteader who lives in a remote area. You might even be the person that could end up medically responsible in situations where help is not going to be coming. And you're the person that I want to speak to. If a truly long-term disaster occurs, you're going to have to be the one to make a decision about whether you use expired medicines or not. In reality, if the disaster lasts long enough, all of your medicines are going to be expired. So let's say you have somebody who's got an infection. They're getting worse. They are beginning to fade and fading fast and and you're off the grid because something bad has happened or you're just in Tibet or some weird remote area, you've got an expired bottle of antibiotics, you got somebody with an infection. What are you going to do? Okay, somebody might be dying. Are you going to use the expired drug? Well, that's your call. I know what I would do. I would use the medicine. Now, for the longest shelf life, of course, the medicine should be stored in cold, or cool at least, dry, dark conditions, their potency fades twice as fast if they're stored at, let's say, 90 degrees than if they're stored at 50 degrees. Freezing them, however, is rarely something that you need to do, even if they're stored in suboptimal conditions. A capsule or a tablet that hasn't changed color, consistency, uh, smell, they're probably still worth keeping for austere settings. Somebody asked me the question, how about aspirin? Uh, they hear aspirin goes bad. Indeed, it can go bad. And you can tell that by a change of color of the, the pills and by a very distinct ammonia smell. It smells, smells like, like ammonia. It smells like apple cider vinegar. Okay, or there you go. Or, or just vinegar. To me, it smells like ammonia. So that Interesting. So those are, if it smells like vinegar or ammonia, it, something it, weird. It, ain't, <laughs> it ain't good anymore. Right. So yes, you're absolutely right. You got to take a look at these things and, you know, use your common sense. Now... Years ago, I said that the issues facing, and I still believe this today, that the issues that are going to face the medically responsible person of a family after a long-term disaster, they're going to be very very basic decisions. <clears throat> they're going to be, what is the problem? Do I have medicine that will treat it? Could this medicine, even if it's expired, possibly save a life? And when it comes down to it, the truth of the matter is you can't really choose to not use it, right? I mean, it might possibly have side effects, might not be quite as strong, but it's what you got. You got to do what you can where you are with what you have. Right. So let's hope it never gets to that. But you have to think about situations like that from a survival mindset that is different from everyday medical or even emergency mindset the truth is is that if you hope for the best while you're preparing for the worst that might not be a bad strategy to deal with the uncertain future all right now i'm going to talk about um something that most people consider just a weed but you'd be surprised at some of the things i'm going to talk about that this weed and i don't mean weed <laughs> like what they have made legal in some states, but just a weed that you might find 
uh, could be very useful in uh, lots of different ailments. And this time we're talking about stinging nettle. Now, I've got this information uh, directly from uh, one of my herbal books. I have lots of them. But this one's specifically from uh, National Geographic, and it's called Guide to Medicinal Herbs, the World's Most Effective Healing Plants, and it has quite a few authors, uh, Rebecca Johnson and Steve Foster, um, someone named Dr. Dog, Low Dog, actually, and Dr. Kiefer. So the story begins, an encounter with stinging nettles is not soon forgotten. Except the roots, the entire plant bristles with nearly invisible needle-sharp hairs that penetrate the skin at the slightest touch. It's funny because I have actually had encounters with stinging nettles. It's not something I find a lot of in my neighborhood or where we are down here, but I have found it again along the West Coast, Washington and Oregon, We've run into it a lot. I think we've seen it in Denver or Colorado, and I'm pretty sure in Tennessee we have a lot of it. Um, and yeah, it it hurts <laughs> when it touches you. Um, its source is a chemical cocktail released from those stinging hairs that causes an intense burning sensation and a swelling of the skin. So it doesn't sound like something that would really be medicinal, right? This sounds like something you'd like to stay away from, sort of like a poison ivy type of reaction. The result is a rash similar to poison ivy, only just much more painful. Someone lost in antiquity discovered something quite remarkable about stinging nettle. Apply it to a body part that's already in pain, and the original pain will dissipate. Now, scientists believe nettle does this by lowering levels of certain inflammatory chemicals in the body and possibly by interfering with the way the pain signals are transmitted to your brain. Stinging nettle's unique ability to fight pain with pain has made it a valuable addition to herbal medicine in treating arthritis, rheumatoidism, and several other painful conditions. Nettle is used to aid and reduce sneezing and itching in people with hay fever. It's widely used in Europe to treat symptoms of early-stage enlarged prostate or benign prosthetic hyperplasia, BPH. It's also given for urinary tract infections, chronic skin conditions, including eczema and psoriasis. Again, something that causes a rash doesn't sound like it would be something that heals a rash. It grows uh, native to Eurasia, and it's actually widespread around the world. And it's been spreading because it is a weed, it flowers in spring to fall, and it's found on the edges of fields, along fence rows, and at the edges of deciduous woods, if you're looking for it. It grows in the eastern U.S., like we talked about, Tennessee, and is generally absent from the interior of the content and occurs along the west coast states. Uh, again, I'm sure I've seen it in Oregon and Washington, but I did think that I've seen it in Denver also. Uh, it was long believed that all North American st stinging nettle was a Eurasian weed, but genetic evidence is showing that it's actually a subspecies 
uh, that's native to North America. So that's quite interesting. Um, it is also native to Canada, and especially in the mountains of the Carolinas and, here we go, eastern Tennessee. So should you cultivate this? Um, I would say if you have the appropriate environment that it might not be a bad addition to your medicinal garden. So if you want to cultivate it, um, think about where you're putting it. Um, find out what kind of soil it likes. Um, it does do best in a damp, rich soil, which means it has a lot of um, deep, dark-looking, rich, almost black-type soil. Um, and it loves full sun. It can actually be cut back three or four times a year to encourage new growth. And it um, actually develops along an edge by creeping rhizomes, which is the part just above the roots but below the ground. And it could create like a pretty good patch of stinging nettle. So make sure you put it in a very roomy area. You don't want to crowd it with a bunch of other things because it could actually take out those other things. And it grows about like two to six feet tall. So you can cut it back and um, use part of the plant as a vegetable. The leaves of the stinging, let's, let's talk about the parts. The leaves of the stinging nettle were um, the plant part most used in herbal medicine. Today, however, the roots are widely used as well. When nettle leaves are harvested, the herb is cut and dried before flowering. The root is harvested in autumn after vegetative growth has died back you know, when it starts cooling off. Most commercial production of stinging nettle takes place in Eastern Europe, but there are limited commercial plantings in Western Europe and the United States, and China's actually uh, recently emerged um, as a supplier. So some of the things we've talked about, therapeutic uses, we talked about benign prosthetic hyperplasia, uh, allergies, arthritis, rheumatoidism, so what do you do to prepare this? You can make an extract of the root of stinging nettle, which has been shown to be useful for the prostate enlargement, and also may help with decreased urinary flow, nighttime urination, and retain urine. It's also possible that compounds in stinging nettle interfere with the conversion of testosterone through an enzyme and other compounds in the stinging nettle, which are anti-inflammatory. Therefore, they inhibit cell growth and block the enzyme. Well, this is getting a little complicated. But anyway, it may stop the growth of the enlarging prostate, which is the result that you may want. I believe there's a lot of herbal compounds that you can get over the counter. Check your sources. Um, find out uh, if where they're getting it, how they're being harvested. Do you trust the company? Um, are they actually putting into these supplements what they say they're putting in instead of just fillers? So you want to definitely check on, on that background. In one trial, they actually did a trial, men taking 600 milligrams of stinging nettle root extract daily had an increased urinary flow after six weeks. So that's good news. Therape 
therapeutic use of the leaves of stinging nettle rather than the root result in different effects, possibly providing relief from allergies and from arthritis. Extracts of stinging nettle leaf have also been studied in osteoarthritis patients. Findings seem to indicate that herbal treatments using stinging nettle leaves both decrease and decrease pain and increase quality of life. I'd say that's two really good results. Stinging nettle leaves and seeds are also used as a diuretic. So how can you use this? You can make a tea. So making the tea, you steep one teaspoon of the dried nettle leaves in one cup of boiling water for two to five minutes and strain. Uh, Let it cool off so it's not too, too hot before you drink it. Um, You can also boil five grams of the chopped dried root in two cups of water for 10 minutes. Strain and cool and you can sip that through the day. You can make a capsule. Use the dried powder root extracts in a capsule form, take, taken in doses of three to 800 milligrams daily, depending on the formulation. Freeze-dried nettle leaf capsules are also available for management of hay fever. There's a tincture form that you can use. Use one to two teaspoons daily of an alcohol-based extract of the stinging nettle root. That's the root. Uh, the extract has a standardized um, availability, and some combine, we're talking about these supplements, some combine the stinging nettle root with saw palmetto berries. Other contain pumpkin seed oil. And be sure if you're buying something over the counter that you follow the manufacturer's guidelines. You don't want to OD on this or do something bad. You know, sometimes... Supplements are not 100% safe if you overdo it. Too much is sometimes just too much. Anyway, this is Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy from the Survival Medicine Hour and doomandbloom.net. Please stay tuned. We will be back next week. Bye-bye. You've been listening to the Doom and Bloom Hour with medical preparedness experts Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. Check out our website at www.doomandbloom.net for hundreds of informative articles about survival medicine, gardening, natural remedies, medical supplies, and lots of other good stuff. Contact us, send your email to drbonespodcast at aol.com or use the contact form on the main page of the website. See you next week.